The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of an unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say this to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy, their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ashley. What a passage. Isaiah 6. This passage is one of those... uh, that for many uh, who follow the Lord would see this as a formative passage, I'm sure. I've even talked to a couple people this morning um, who've indicated that. Uh, it kind of blows your hair back. Uh, and we're going to get into it and, and unpack it. And I think one of the things that I, I, my prayer as we've been building up to this Sunday for this particular passage is just that we wouldn't look away from it. Uh, in what it's actually saying. Because it's saying some things that are hard to hear, and yet we, we, we fail to grasp the wonder of the gospel if we can't hear these things. And so, and so we're going to get into this. Um, I was in uh, Dallas last week at our denomination's General Assembly. That's, uh, we're a part of a denomination if, if, uh, called the Presbyterian Church in America. And... Uh, we have a annual conference. Some people joke and call it Pastor Camp. Um, in the summer, where, where we all get together and we do denominational church business, we vote on overtures and we hear reports from committees that run ministries and things like that. And, and uh, so I was in Dallas this week for that. And uh, I I love to walk. I love to be on foot. I love to if you. Like, I'm the kind of guy that if I fly into a city and my hotel is four miles away, I will think about walking from the airport to the hotel if I can do it without an interstate being in my way. 
Um, I love to do it. So our hotel was near downtown Dallas, but not, it was a couple miles away. And I, the first morning we were there, I had, had some time. And so I walked um, into the heart of downtown Dallas. And I went to a particular area in downtown Dallas called Dealey Plaza. Are you familiar with Dealey Plaza? Dealey Plaza is the place where John F. Kennedy was shot. And it's right there. Uh, it's just a, it's a road, a couple of roads that merge together in this kind of grassy area, grassy knoll, um, near there. And, uh, and there's all kinds of plaques and there's all kinds of people who are around giving tours, conspiracy theorists tours, historical tours, people who are, and, and there's all this stuff and it's fascinating to me. Um, and I was texting my family, just blowing up all their phones to, to, to show them all these photos of the X's on the ground where the, where the, um, the shots were fired. Uh, you can see the book depository in the window where Lee Harvey Oswald uh, was, was situated. And, um, and I, I just, I'm fascinated by this, but, but I, was, I was thinking about that and, and about this passage, and it's, it strikes me that, that history is punctuated by these kind of cataclysmic moments, that there are moments in history where you ask anybody from a culture, um, from a particular culture, about where they were when that event happened, they'll be able to tell you, right? So if you were alive and cognizant when the shuttle Challenger blew up, you can tell me where you were when that happened. I was in Mr. Orr's seventh grade English class. You can tell people where you were on 9-11 when you heard the news that the towers had been hit and you can replay a lot of that day back in your mind. And people who were born before 1955 or so, give or take, um, will be able to tell you where they were on November 22nd, 1963 when John F. Kennedy was shot. Because his, his death wasn't just a, a, somebody dying. It was a moment that was punctuating history. It was, it was the end of an era in American history. Camelot fell, right? It represented so much more than just one person's death because he was a leader and he represented the people. And now suddenly without him, the question people had to ask was what's next? And history works this way. And when we look at today's passage, it's happening here. This text, Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 13, opens by telling us that this is happening in the year that King Uzziah died. When King Uzziah died, Judah was at the end, the, 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 the people of Judah, they were at the end of an era themselves. Their king had died, his death had marked a turning point. Them. Uzziah became king when he was 16 years old, and he reigned over Judah for 52 years. So to have a reign that long is going to be formative for just about everybody in the land that he will have been the only king they knew. And he died. Early on, when Uzziah began to reign, he was like his father before him, and he brought a kind of a golden age to the land of Israel and Judah. Second Chronicles 26 talks about his reign, and it, and it describes Jerusalem enjoying this vibrant economy, they had a strong military, they had glorious architecture, 
And Uzziah was, by all counts, a great king. But over time, though, he began to take credit for the glory of Jerusalem himself. He began to talk about it as though it was something he did, something he had done. And his pride was his downfall. And, and the downfall was punctuated with a, with a moment for him where on one occasion he was so drunk with pride that he went into the temple where only the priests were allowed to go to make an incense offering, which only the priests were allowed to make. And the priests, they warned him, and they said, it's not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who've been consecrated. But Uzziah wouldn't listen. It was his world, and they were just living in it. And so he made his offering. And when he did, God struck him with leprosy. And leprosy was the kind of thing that meant you had to live now separate. You were unclean. And you were visibly unclean. And Uzziah had this leprosy until the day he died. And so he ended up living in a separate house, leprous and excluded from the Lord's temple. It's an interesting story arc, isn't it? You have this king who reigned for 52 years, who brought a lot of glory and a lot of good, a lot of strength. But then he had this moment where he offended the Lord and God struck him with leprosy. And then he lived in seclusion and isolation until he, until he died. And so when we have this passage in the year King Uzziah died, it's not just that their splendorous reigning great king died. It's that this king with this complicated story finally at last succumbed. And it was a defining moment because this is how it goes. As goes the king, so goes the people. When he led, extolling the glory and the wonder of Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem celebrated. When he took credit, many of them, as people still do today, began to really celebrate the glory of the king. And then he died, and that's leaving the question, well, now, now what? And the people in their prosperity, they forsook the Lord just like their king had done. And now they're in this place where they're adrift and they're lost and bad things are coming. Can you relate to this? Uh, specifically, relate to having a season in your life where you're pretty clear-headed about your affection and your allegiance to God. And then over time, you, that softens. Or you get pumped up about what you've actually been able to accomplish. Or maybe you've been on a roll and then you get your legs kicked out from under you and you suspect in some way that God must be involved in that. Scripture says you can't serve God and money. Why? Because we can't seek both God's glory and our own glory at the same time. When we're seeking the glory of God, our lives 
are driven by serving him. But when we're driven by prosperity and success and money, we're seeking our own glory. How do you know what you're seeking? Well, what do you want your life to look like? How do you, if you were to write the script and you were to say, actually, what I really want five years from now is for my life to look like this. Is it the story of serving the Lord with your life or is it the story of wild, unmitigated success? Where on that continuum would it be? Would you rather be dependent on God for your daily bread and close to him or independent from anyone or anything. I'm messing with myself when I ask these questions because I, I want to be, I, one of the parts of the Lord's Prayer that I, that I, I wish was worded a little differently in my flesh sometimes is the give us this day our daily bread I prefer monthly bread. I prefer annual bread. Just give it to me. I'll be a good steward. Give me a year's worth so I can know that I'm okay. And I'll be good. I'll take care, you know. But no, there's something about the beauty of the way the Lord works with his people. He says, it's daily bread. And you're just going to have to keep coming. And you're going to have to be dependent on me. If we're seeking to be autonomous from the Lord. Sometimes that's even our prayer to the Lord. Grant me all these things because, boy, that would lift the burden of feeling like I don't have complete control over my life. That's not a prayer the Lord is super favorable to grant, right? We're called to dependence on him. Pride is so close. It's always just right, right there. Even the most faithful person can become Uzziah, can become what he became. And we know this because all of Judah followed with him. And now we come to this passage, and one of the things we're hearing loud and clear in this passage is the Lord saying to his own people, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge you. Let's just lean into that, that God is not a freewheeling hippie, but that he loves and he judges, and he judges perfectly, severely even. We won't get the goodness of this passage unless we acknowledge that. So as the people are crying out, what next, following Uzziah's death, Isaiah has this is given this call to tell them. So this, this sermon is called The Prophet's Call. Uzziah is given this call to be the messenger of God and to deliver a message. That's what a prophet is. A prophet is a messenger of God who is set apart to deliver God's word to God's people. And prophets delivered various forms over, over time of basically the same message. And it was kind of a two-point message. The message of the prophets focused on the people's need for redemption and God's plan of salvation. 
your need for redemption, God's plan of salvation. So prophets then, if you take those together, they, they proclaimed humanity's sin and God's redemption. These were kind of the two foot, footsteps of the prophet as they came walking in. The sin and redemption, sin and redemption, sin and redemption. This is the message that they brought. But the thing about Old Testament prophets, the thing about every prophet except for one, is the message they delivered they didn't fulfill. They didn't accomplish the message. They were just that. They were messengers. They were messengers only. And this is something that sets Jesus apart from all the other prophets because he is both the messenger, but he is also the means of redemption. He is at the same time the prophet and the word. Just in the same way he is the priest and the sacrifice, the king and the servant of all. Beautiful. Until Christ, prophets, they were these bearers of God's word, and they were pointing to another who would ultimately fulfill them. But Christ brings the words of God, but he also accomplishes the salvation that he and all the other prophets had been proclaiming. So what is Isaiah's message to Judah, this message of sin and redemption, sin and redemption? Because the message of the prophets was focused on Christ himself, it means that their proclamations were holy. They were utterly holy. They were were of greater significance than a message from the king. They were a message from the Lord. And so there was something sanctified about them. There was something intense about them. So holy is the message we see in this passage that Isaiah is going to bring that one of the angels touches a live coal to his lips in order to purify the instrument that he would use to prophesy his mouth. And his message was a message of certain and severe judgment. Certain and severe judgment. Look at verse 9 and 10. We see it. I'm going to read it again just briefly. He says... Uh, Go say this to the people. This is the certain judgment. Say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their hearts and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's not going to happen. They're not going to do that. The judgment is coming. It's certain. The Lord has passed judgment on Judah already for disregarding his holiness, and there is no way out. That's part of the message of Isaiah to the people of Judah. They will hear, but they will not understand. They will see, they will not perceive, and they will not turn, and they will have no opportunity to repent and to avoid this judgment. That could not have been a fun message to deliver We look at verses 11 and 13 where Isaiah asks how long the judgment is going to last. And we see that it's not just a judgment that's going to be certain, but it's going to be severe. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. 
And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. It will last until every person has been carried off into exile except for a tenth of them. Every home is going to be abandoned. Fields are going to be ruined. It will be like a forest with every tree cut down. And only the stumps remain. And this judgment will continue until the land is utterly forsaken. How are we doing so far? It's heavy, right? We have to ask the question, is this fair? Who is this monster of a God? We may argue, how can a good God judge like this? If you're going to ask that question, if you're going to ask, how can God be good and still judge? You have to also ask, how can God still be holy and not judge? How can God be holy and not judge? If God is holy, and if he won't look on sin, how could he not judge and still be all that he's proclaimed himself to be? We need to understand that God must, because he's holy. Because he's completely holy, God must deal harshly with our sin. Because his holiness demands it. And we must beware any other view, lest we commit the sin, the sin Uzziah committed and enter into the presence of God as though we're just entitled to be there on our own merit. And we live in a culture right now that believes that we are unilaterally entitled to call upon the name of whoever God is because we want to. Knowing this passage was coming, I've known several people who have said Isaiah 6 was a breaking point in their conversion because of the severity of what's being said. The the holiness of God, the power of God, the splendor of God, the severity of God. It's, It's here. And it's not warm and it's not fuzzy. It's strong. And what this passage has the ability to do through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is show us and remind us we're lawbreakers. We are. I can't look at God and say, I'm entitled to be in your presence because I'm perfect. Because we know we're not. And he is. And he's completely holy. And he won't look upon sin. He can't look upon sin. God gave his law, Romans 3 tells us, so that we might become conscious of our own sin that we might know it, that we might be appropriately indicted. And so when we say God's judgment is unfair, we're assuming he has neither reason nor right to judge us. And that right there demonstrates how profoundly unaware we are of our guilt before him. His judgment is certain, And it's severe because he is holy and we are not. 
That's the sound of the footstep of sin and the prophet. That's the message. Let's hear the sound of the footstep of, uh, footstep of redemption. The holy seed will grow. If the message of the prophet is sin and redemption, sin and redemption, and if God's judgment of sin is certain and it's severe because he is holy and we are not, so then must his redemption, if there is to be redemption, his redemption must also be certain and it must also be severe if all he says of himself is true. And one of the things he says of himself is that he will redeem. And all he says of humanity is true. That we are utterly sinful and helpless to save ourselves. Verse 13. After all of this. A holy seed is in its stump. Life. Remains. In this utterly judged place. These utterly judged people. Life remains in the desolation. See the gospel here. Jesus is that holy seed who grows from the stump of ravaged Judah. We see here that God can utterly judge and still keep a people for himself. See how he'll do it. He'll do it by giving us a final prophet who will be both the messenger of redemption and the means of our salvation. Later, Isaiah 11, in Isaiah 11, he describes Christ like this. Keep that life in the stump image in your mind from verse 13. This is from Isaiah 11. It describes Christ like this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. And the nations will rally to him. And his place of rest will be glorious. And the Lord will reach out his hand to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people. The place of his rest will be glorious. Golgotha. Empty. 
as with his redemption, or as with his judgment, his redemption is also certain and severe. This promise, and I conclude with this, this promise of hope comes in the context of the opening verses of this passage where the glory of God is being revealed. And it's astonishing. There's angels and songs and live coals being touched and a person saying, I'm a man of unclean, I don't even deserve to be here. We can't separate God's salvation from his glory. His redemption is a glorious thing. It bears witness to his glory. We read these, these verses 1 through 4 and we see the radiance of God is so glorious that the angelic host of heaven shield themselves from it. Angels are a mystery to me. They are to you too, by the way. <laughs> if they're not, look again. But whenever you see angels in Scripture, here's a good rule of thumb. Their reaction to God is probably the most appropriate reaction. And when they respond in the fear of the Lord, and when they erupt in songs of praise and adoration, and we're saying, I don't understand, I'm not following, trust me, they're getting it right. And here that's what we see. The radiance of God is so glorious that even the angelic host of heaven, they shield themselves from it, they erupt in a song, and the song is not so much an angelic refrain as much as a thunderous proclamation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And as they sing this song, the doorposts and the thresholds of the temple, they shake and the place is filled with smoke. And Isaiah falls apart. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, as if he's saying, I'm unworthy to join in this song. I'm going to ruin its beauty. And so he said the only thing that he could say in response to this display of majesty, and that is, woe is me, I am ruined. May we always declare our own ruin before we trumpet the stain of the rest of the world. Because until we recognize the stain of our own sin, we have nothing consequential to say about the holiness of God. But the purpose of salvation is to reconcile. Is to reconcile those who are ruined by sin to a holy God whose holiness is so majestic the angels can't even look upon it. The purpose of salvation is to reconcile those. And God's means, the shoot from Judah's stump, has already done it. Christ. Without him, we are ruined. With him, we are delivered unto life. Grafted. The prophet Isaiah's call was to bear the bad news of sin and the good news of salvation that is ours in Christ. May we never overlook the former, lest we lose the joy of the latter. Pray with me. Lord,
we read passages like this that were originally transcribed in another language and now we're looking at it in English about a prophet encountering you in your throne room and the angelic host being there and we know that a lot is lost in translation in terms of grasping the magnificence and the splendor and the wonder and that is a mercy from you because were we to see it as Isaiah or as Isaiah did we would be undone too and yet you give us a commentary on it you give us some detail about it you give us a window to put our noses against and peer in that's powerful and it's severe your judgment so severe and so certain your redemption the same cause us to hope in Christ and him alone and not in anything else lest we be presumptive like King Uzziah and think that we are entitled to you simply because of our own rank in the world and instead, Lord, cause us to delight and wonder and rejoice in being brought into your presence, ushered into your throne room by the living one. The shoot that came up from the stump of Judah and reconciled us to yourself. We pray this in your name. Amen.